This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. This is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began this podcast, gosh, I think almost five years ago now, to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological issues or emotions, or maybe you're in psychotherapy, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and you're looking for answers, or you're having maybe some relationship problems that you don't seem to be able to tackle, but also to a third group, to those of you who might say to your friends, I'd never darken the door of a therapist, they're just weird but are just curious enough or perhaps unhappy enough to listen in. So welcome to all of you. I heard a wonderful interview on a new podcast for me. It's called Terrible Thanks for Asking. It's all about grief. And that sounds, you know, dark and not so hot to listen to. But actually, I think it's a wonderful podcast and I would definitely recommend it. And that's been the motivation for today's topic. The interview was with an author and Harvard professor named Susan David, and she reported her experience as a child in watching her father's very slow death and how she tried to handle it by just telling people she was fine until an eighth grade teacher offered her the important tools she needed to finally stop being fine and recognize all her feelings not categorizing them anymore as good or bad, but all important emotions to recognize. So today in this episode, sponsored by BetterHelp, we'll be focusing on what's termed toxic positivity, when optimism and looking on the bright side morph into something just as destructive as painful negativity. I'll tie this in with several other resources. I'll quote Dr. Springer, who actually just two episodes ago was our guest here on Self Work. And I'll be quoting mindfulness and meditation experts John Kabat-Zinn, as well as the authors of Buddha's Brain, Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius, about their own thoughts about positive thinking. And finally, I've got to put in my two cents, as you know I do. So I'll give you what I hope is a helpful analogy about staying in the positive and instead trying to understand the benefit of being able to feel all feelings, regardless of their valence or positive or negative power. Our listener email wasn't an email at all, but an Instagram message to me. She wanted to know, as a therapist still in training, what direction I might point out to her that would be important for her to evolve into her most competent therapist. What an honor to be asked. So perhaps if any of you are thinking of being therapists or in training yourself, my answers will be helpful. So sit back or relax, whatever you're doing. We're going to talk about when positivity gets destructive. One of the many things I had to face when I handed the final draft of the book Perfectly Hidden Depression to the publisher was knowing that it was imperfect and that I'd learned more about aspects of the topic of perfectionism than I wish I'd known before or recognized when I was writing it. It actually was quite difficult to do, to hand it in, being perfectionistic myself, but I actually wanted to get the message out, and that was a stronger feeling for me than waiting around for somehow me to know something or everything about the topic I needed to act, so I handed it in and waited for the inevitable to arrive. 
and arrive it did. For example, I'd struggled to come up with terms in the book for the different ends of the spectrum of perfectionism. My words got all tangled up in the book, frankly, and I'll spare you and I won't read them. After the book was already published, I read about constructive versus destructive perfectionism, and duh, that's what I was trying to explain. I just couldn't come up with the terminology. The term toxic positivity was another one of those terms. One of the traits of PhD is you believe strongly in counting your blessings as the foundation of well-being. And I go on to explain in the book, you can be grateful and grieve all at the same time. I was trying to talk about how being overly positive can be toxic, but I have to laugh because, of course, I predicted this would happen and it's happening. Let's not doubt that positivity in and of itself is a wonderful attribute. In Buddha's Brain, which is a book about the neuroscience of happiness, love, and wisdom, the authors talk about first that the brain, this is so fascinating to me, quote, preferentially scans for, registers, stores, recalls, and reacts to unpleasant experience. The brain is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. I had never heard anyone say that. So, finding ways... To be positive, optimistic, or hopeful is vital to facilitate the brain's neuronal system to encode happiness or positivity. And the authors suggest three ways of actually fostering it. One, you turn positive facts into positive experiences, meaning you don't just stick with the fact that you love that the sun is on your face or it's a sunny day outside. You actually feel the sun on your face and you absorb it. And number two, you savor that experience so you're actually, you know, you think about imagining eating your favorite food and then really noticing eating it. It's like, okay, well, I'm eating a potato chip just because it's comfort, but now I'm going to really feel myself eating the potato chip. I know, a little woo-woo, but it, it works. And then number three is imagine or feel that the experience is entering deeply into your mind and body. And their thought is, again, I'm quoting, this will greatly enhance the chance that your brain will register that positive feeling if you deepen it, and then the brain will be able to bring it back up in your memory. So that's about cultivating positivity. Nothing wrong with that, right? Well, if it becomes the only way you allow yourself to feel, or you were taught that not constantly being positive was equivalent to not being grateful, to being selfish, to choosing to ignore your blessings, then an entire range of emotion vanishes for you. It's like those emotions don't exist. Think of an artist's palette, and you only have bright, happy colors to paint with. I think what artists might say is that there isn't light without shadow. So in an emotional context, you're cutting yourself in half and only expressing part of your humanity. Now, if you're the recipient of toxic positivity when you're struggling, then it can feel demeaning, belittling, similar to gaslighting in many ways. When you're accused of, you know, you just have a problem and you don't really know what exists in reality, that's gaslighting. It can almost feel as if the intention isn't to be supportive, but to suggest you are acting in self-destructive ways simply because you're hurting, and that's where you are right now, or you're angry, or you're afraid. Those whose choice is to be constantly positive also lack the empathy necessary to be in a supportive space with someone else. And even more than that, at times, there can be a superiority assumed. If only you were on a higher moral plane, you could get beyond this pain of yours, like I do. That feels horrible when you're the recipient of it. We actually know that the symptoms of classic depression 
are quite the opposite, that the primary emotions that are felt because you're depressed are darker, more pessimistic, anxious, or even angry ones. They can be overwhelming as a part of the disorder and create their own vacuum. And very rarely can positive emotions withstand the strength of that vacuum. I often call severe classic depression as an implosion of the self. And those positive emotions, they're almost impossible to hang on to. You are not choosing to be depressed. Now, as many of you who may have listened to my podcast on perfectly hidden depression, you know that the perfect looking life, the highly emotionally controlled life, can mandate only the expression of positivity, gratitude. That's one of the most important distinctions of it. That doesn't mean those emotions aren't brooding under the surface or painful shame isn't pummeling their mind with its message. John Kabat-Zinn, as someone who's teaching about meditation and mindfulness, says, If we decide to think positively, that may be useful, but it's not meditation. It's just more thinking. We can easily become a prisoner of so-called positive thinking as of negative thinking. It, too, can be confining, fragmented, inaccurate, illusory, self-serving, and wrong. So he's saying that either one of the edges of the spectrum, positivity and negativity, can be destructive and even lead us into ways of being and thinking, feeling and believing that aren't an accurate picture of reality, of wholeness, of the entirety of both our inner and outer world. Now, I see both sides of the spectrum in therapy. Those who struggle to see anything worthy about themselves or about their life, to those of you who look at me as if I'm crazy when I say, what's the hard thing about being you? What might have caused you pain in your life? Oh, no, I I had a great family, and now I have a wonderful life. I'm here because someone told me you might be good for me to talk to, but I'm not sure I understand why. Or they say, I'm here because I'm having trouble with eating or getting enough rest. Or more recently, they say, I'm not sure why I'm here, but when I read the term perfectly hidden depression, I knew I had to come. But don't expect me to just open up. That's really hard for me. Before we talk about the incredible work of Susan David... Someone else I wish I'd discovered before writing the book and will be introducing into what I hope is a second workbook. Let's hear from BetterHelp with an offer that may help you get started being able to feel the entire spectrum of what's in there and out there to feel. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone, and I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast, Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then 
I learned about BetterHelp in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. TryBetterHelp.com slash selfwork. That's TryBetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to self-work. And if self-work is helping you, maybe better help is your next step. To get a great picture of the wisdom and wit and honesty of Susan David, it would be a wonderful idea for you to tune into her TED Talk, and I have that link in the show notes. As I said in the introduction, I heard her on Terrible Thanks for Asking, and I'm going to try and set her up for an interview on self-work for sure. But I wanted to bring you her ideas, which she voices so very eloquently, about toxic positivity. First of all, as a researcher at Harvard, she found what she called a tyranny of positivity with her research. She questioned 70,000 people, which is a huge sample size for research. One-third of them said they were hiding or ashamed of painful feelings, that they shouldn't feel that way. One-third. That is an incredible number. She goes on to state, and I'm quoting, being positive is a new form of moral correctness. That's kind of what I was saying before. Her book, which I've ordered, calls the ability to express and feel all kinds of emotions, emotional agility. Think of agile athletes. They can move spontaneously without seeming, and that's an important word, effort. And the movement can go from slow to rapid. Their bodies are well-trained to do both. So rather than labeling feelings as good or bad, there are no labels. Emotions are simply emotions. They aren't choices. They're not behaviors. They are states of being. You can choose to act on them or not act on them. And one of her most meaningful points is also beautifully but strongly asserted. She says, Life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. How many times has someone I'm seeing said, You know, until I became depressed or had a panic attack or have grieved a family member, I never really appreciated the good in my life. I took it for granted. I hope I never will again. Life's hardships... Its fragility, as she puts it, is inherently tied to what it can teach us, what it has to offer. It's not that you've welcomed your hurt or your abuse or your trauma. We're not celebrating it as if it's the reason why you have reached such lofty goals. That's far too simple. But what she's saying is having the shadow in your life and recognizing it can help you see life's light a bit more brightly. But obviously, you have to go through a lot of pain, a lot of fragility to get there. One more thought before I get to my own analogy that I hope will be helpful. Dr. Springer, in last weekend's episode, said that she believed that our American culture has become grief avoidant. And I've seen the same thing. Susan David calls it positivity tyranny. None of us think it's helpful or healthy. And here's why. And again, here's by two bits. Let's take you as a parent, and you're teaching your child to swim. First, if you're at a pool, you teach them in the more shallow end, the end of the pool that's less frightening, more accessible, where as you grow taller, you can get your bearings easily by simply standing up. Think of that as feeling more positive feelings. They're fun. Sometimes they run deep as well, such as joy, but they don't have the power to frighten or confuse you. You can stand up. 
at any time. Now think of when you let your child swim into the deep end or dive off the diving board. You watched more carefully. You made sure that they had the swimming skills to get back up to the top of the water or they could swim over to the side. I well remember the first time I touched the bottom of the pool in the deep end and I was so proud of myself. I felt competent as a swimmer, mostly when I could go into the deep end. When I'd had enough or I was getting tired, I could swim back into the more shallow end and stand up, get my bearings, play a game, whatever. So now think of your ability to swim as your ability to feel or to connect with all feelings. The easier, more pleasant feelings lie in the shallow end. Not because they're shallow in and of themselves, but because they're more pleasant to feel. But from time to time, you can also swim into the deep end and feel more complex feelings. Feelings that are harder to understand or make sense of. But you know you can swim back to the shallow end when you need to. You have that skill to swim back and forth. You also can see the totality of the pool that a less deep end exists at the same time the deeper end exists. It is one and the same. It is your life. It is as if the swimming pool is your emotional life. You have feelings that are pleasant and playful and fun, and then you have feelings that are more complex and may take a little more effort to work through. But you can feel competent because you can swim back and forth and manage it all. That's what I think you can learn yourself and teach your children. They don't have to stay out of the deep end. They have the power to swim back. And it's actually so important to know that you have the skill to do both. You have the skill to feel all your feelings. That feels like emotional competence, or what Susan David would call emotional agility. And that is very freeing. This is far from toxic positivity, far from only seeing the good, or what you're learning through this, or some other type of oversimplified rationale. I think I've told this story before on self-work, but I'm going to tell it again here. I'll never forget one night in my practice. I had a very depressed, even at times suicidal patient. She and I had discussed what she needed to do to stay safe and come up with a plan. We called her ex-husband, who she was still very close to. She talked to him with me present, and they agreed to meet at her home. He said it would take maybe 10 minutes for him to get there. I kept her in the office for a little bit to make sure he'd be there when she got there. But she reassured me she was okay. About 20 minutes later, she'd killed herself. Her ex called me and told me that he'd found her. He had been hung up by something he didn't expect. And she'd locked the door so he couldn't get in. I was paralyzed. I felt guilt, shame, remorse, incredible sadness. What had I missed? What should I have done differently? There obviously were things I could have done differently, but I didn't choose to do them. I called a fellow therapist and said I needed to see her. I was sobbing in her living room when she said to me, these are her exact words, Wow, you can really feel this. I looked up and saw a complete lack of empathy on her face. And perhaps I read this in, I don't know, but again what seemed sort of like that moral superiority, as if I was less of a person or a therapist because I was so emotional. I didn't feel safe, and I got out of there as soon as possible. I made myself available to that patient's family, them telling me that she hadn't told a soul, and they were as surprised as I was. She'd loved her children so much. I went back into my own therapy and talked about it for many sessions. And by the way, I never referred to that therapist again. 
I vote for emotional risk. I believe that true emotional competence or agility reflects that you can feel great pain and you can move out of it when it becomes overwhelming. My patient didn't have enough of that agility or competence, and I will never forget her. Our listener email is an Instagram message to me, so I'll read it here. Dr. Rutherford, I love your podcast and your book so much. Both are so helpful to me as I'm an associate therapist working toward licensure. I respect your work and insights. I was curious what advice that you might have for me. Are there any books, resources, or classes that have been impactful to you as a therapist? I didn't feel I could answer her question specifically enough, so I asked if we could chat, and we did early one morning this weekend. She'd already taken the training and is EMDR certified as she works on finishing her LPC. So that's really quite a lot and to be respected. But to any of you who might be listening who are in training or perhaps you're already a therapist and experiencing some burnout, here are a couple of suggestions. First, I think you have to know yourself. Therapy is hard to do. It can be lonely as you cannot make friends with those you see. So finding ways to make sure there's a good fit between who you are as a person and what kind of work you're doing is, to me, vital. For example, I'm more of an introvert, so spending lots of time per day seeing people one at a time or in couples was fine with me. But to someone who wasn't introverted, that would lead to burnout very quickly. Second, I myself for the first years went to a lot of workshops on a lot of different things. Marital work, grief work, hypnosis, different modalities of therapy. Everything from CBT to DBT to family systems to internal family systems to EMDR. I wanted to stick my toe in a lot of different waters to see where my passion would be ignited. It turned out I loved doing hypnosis and later, much later, EMDR and practiced both. But not with every patient. However, you might really want to become known as an expert in one thing. That's where you believe you can use your talents and skills the best. So do that. There's nothing wrong with being an eclectic therapist. There's nothing wrong with being an expert in a particular field. There's not a right or wrong way. Third, you're going to have your own style of doing therapy. Mine is sort of an executive or proactive style of doing it, but I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea, nor will you be. And that's okay. You probably were drawn to doing therapy because you wanted to help people because therapy intrigued you. Perhaps your own therapy had helped you, but you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Fourth, my advice is to have friends that aren't therapists and who don't need you to be theirs. These are people who have the ability to give back to you. Therapists too often fall into the trap of being therapeutic all the time, and you need a break. So, Find one therapist that can help you with cases where you hit a wall and vice versa, where you can get some supervision, but also find a friend that you can just have a normal relationship with. Both are very important. Last, really good self-care is vital. You're not perfect. You're going to struggle with whatever your own vulnerability is. You don't have to be without struggles to help facilitate others going through theirs. Your own self-work is important and going into therapy yourself can be very helpful, something I've done off and on all my life, and of course, keep you humble. So I hope those ideas are helpful.
Thank you all for being here. And to a couple of you who have left written reviews on Amazon within the last few months, Monica says, After having read the book, I'm even more convinced that this syndrome is 100% what I struggle with. The book is on to something that often gets overlooked in the mental health arena, namely when people appear to be high-functioning and yet are deeply depressed. She entitles it, Don't Skip the Exercises. (laughs) She says it's worth going at a slow enough pace to really do the work, and if possible, discussing some of your observations with a therapist. And then Devannon says... As I read this phenomenal book, a strong feeling of relief washed over me. I've struggled with perfectionism in many of the issues contained in this read, and I was happy to know that I was not alone. This book gives hope, and that is something we can all use a lot of. So thank you both so very much. Thank you to all of you who've left reviews on Amazon for the book or left ratings. I cannot tell you what that means. And also to those of you who've left ratings and reviews for self-work. Again, I read them all. I take them to heart and try to incorporate your suggestions or your ideas into the podcast. You can reach me in a lot of different ways. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and if you subscribe there, you'll get a weekly newsletter which contains my podcast, my blog post, or any other news about seminars or something I'm involved in. It's an easy way to keep in touch with me, and you get the one weekly newsletter, I promise, not more. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com, and I'm more than happy for you to email me. I do read all the emails. Sometimes I can't get back to them all, but I'll do my best. And I may use your email as a listener email, with your permission, of course. I'm also over on Instagram at drmargaretrutherford. I'm on Pinterest at dr underscore margaret. We post all kinds of things over there. Also, I have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. We're up to almost 2.8 thousand people there. And there's a lot of great support, advice, and just friendship and laughter in that group. So thank you so much for being here again. We're going to have a very full June. And then in July, we're taking a couple of weeks off. But I'll do what I did before and have some second time around posts because those have really done very well and you seem to enjoy them. So I will do that again. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.